welcome to Too Deep, Hokies Under the Influence. My name is Pete Berthod, and my co-host is Robbie Dowling. Robbie, I am pumped about the Belk Bowl. Why don't you give us a cheers? Let's get right into it. My cheers is going to be for something we'll talk about in a minute, and that's Whit Babcock and his unbelievable way of dealing with shitty situations that a couple of them we found ourselves in over his tenure here. And he finds a way to impress me every single time. I think that we should all, in this season of being thankful and giving back to everybody, be thankful for having him around and what he's done for all of our programs, especially with some of the news that came out over the last week. Big cheers to Whit Babcock and... He's kind of the foundation that builds everything else in the programs. So thanks to him. And I'm just so happy that we have him around and we're, I think we're lucky to have him. Cheers to wit. Oh yeah. We have some, some news and notes since we don't have a game to recap this week. We can kind of cover a little bit more ground in terms of what's going on with the program as a whole. And I guess first we should start with the drive for 25 campaign that was announced a couple weeks ago now, but we now know all the details behind it. The drive for 25, it's it's you know centered around the idea of Frank Beamer being 25, but the idea is it's a new funding fundraising initiative to get to 25,000 Hokie Club members. And as I understand it, we're at about 11,000 right now. Is that right, Robbie? I think that's right. The, the numbers have varied a little bit, but based on where my Hokie Club membership was out of the maximum – I think we started probably around 10,000. Some people think it's a little bit higher than that, but we've made about a 10% increase in Hokie Club membership since we started the drive. 25,000 seems like an awful lot. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's a long, it's a long-term endeavor, I think. Yeah, 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 cuz they said that uh Clemson and Florida State are right under the 25,000 mark in terms of their like alumni association memberships. And those are clearly two big time, big donor program. So if we could ever get on the same footing as them, that would be amazing. So obviously this is a, a multi-year initiative. It's not just a, a short term, let's get to it this summer kind of thing. So here's, I have a couple thoughts on this. One, if you have the resources and if you don't, that's cool. Nobody's out there judging you. Nobody cares. Like that's, that's totally cool. You're doing what it takes to kind of live your life. If you have the resources to give back, and you care about the program, and you watch the product every week, and you care about it, join. I think it's $100 minimum for a year, which, you know, two big nights out at the bar, less a year, <laughs> and you're, you're covered for the $100 donation. I think it's important. It's a circular reference, I think, through all of the different programs and how the athletic program influences our academic program. If you think back to... You know, the 1999 year, Michael Vick, and the big news there was not just him, but what happened in applications to get to Virginia Tech after that. It was actually really meaningful. So I wouldn't look at this in a bubble of you're just donating money so we have a good football team. I would look at it in a couple different ways. One, it's, it is relative how good your football program and your sports programs in general are to getting good athletes and good students in, your, in there. And if you get them in there, people can be more attracted to your program, which can elevate the academic program as well. It's all related and it's all important. And for me, 
you know, the tax incentive, people talk about that. I'm going to donate regardless of what is going on because I want our teams, all of them, to have the resources that they need to pass out scholarships. The students, I think, deserve them. And it costs me 68 cents on the dollar, right, after I run my taxes and everything to donate to VT scholarships because you get the the tax write-off. So for every 68 cents that I donate, I give a dollar to the actual program, which for me is a bargain and, you know, helps me think about not only increasing the membership, but if you're already a member, keep that in mind when you're donating. I like what you had to say there. And I I can speak personally to the, what Michael Vick did for Virginia Tech, because quite honestly, if Michael Vick had never played for Virginia Tech, it would have never been on my radar being a kid from Delaware. And then I was like, oh, I'll... That football team's kind of cool. Oh, wait, they have a really good engineering program. And I went to tech for engineering, and I was really happy with the decision. But you're right. It is all linked. And um, if you can give, please give. But we're not going to just talk about fundraising campaigns all night. We want to talk some football. And the other thing we had on the on the slate was <laughs> it's kind of a funny thing because it's so silly. But the Wakey Leaks thing that came out where – uh, one of the announcers for Wake Forest and a former coach was giving away game plan information to opposing teams. Uh, I think his name was Elrod. And it just is so dumb. Like the whole thing is dumb. And it's, I don't know, that guy has to be a like just the worst kind of person to want to like sell at his university as far as we can tell. I mean, they fired him for giving away plays. We don't know how like serious all of it was and what he was actually giving to teams, but apparently someone on the tech staff received it. Does that mean they received an email? Does that mean they used the information? We don't know, but we got fined $25,000 for it, which is a drop in the bucket. Part of the new drive for 25 campaign. (laughs) Oh, geez. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to use some of that money for wakey leaks, but, uh, it's just so dumb. I mean, do you have any comments on this? No, I'm still embarrassed to be a part of it. I knew as soon as we started posting all the gifts and everything else of the zero for zero game, which I have other thoughts on, that <laughs> I knew it was going to come back and bite us. I, I joked on the key play and I posted something that 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 image is my final destination, a reference to the movie. Like one day I'm literally going to get hit by a bus just like happens in the first movie of final destination. And on the side of it is going to be the, that, that picture of the zero zero game. It follows me around and I hate it more. I hate it more than most people. And I think the reason is, is because I love Frank Beamer so much and it just showed like where the program had gotten to. And it was kind of the end of, his reign of the program you saw coming when that got posted. So Andy Bitter called me out because he said, I care too much about football on Twitter because I was calling him out for, for posting it because for, for some of us, for me, it's not about the score of the game or the embarrassment that happened in the game. It's, it's about the fact that I love Frank Beamer so much. And it was kind of the end of, it was the end of his kind of regime over the program and everything that he had done. And of course this thing comes out and now the picture is everywhere again. So it's following me around for the rest of my life. And that's really the, the thing about this is that I just am been trying like you to forget that game for two years, the 2014 wake forest game that ended zero zero in regulation. And we ultimately lost six to three. Like I can't forget it because it just keeps coming up because people think it's funny and they post the picture and it's fine. And it is kind of funny, 
But then this thing comes out and it's like, now we have to relive this game again. We're getting fined because of a game in which we didn't score a point in regulation. Like, what has gone wrong with the world? And you're right. That game is the total symbol of, like, a bottom. Like, that's where our stock was at its absolute lowest was after that game, that picture. And what it represents is so much worse than the actual, like, joke of it because it is – the picture's silly. And that's my point that people don't like, it's not the picture. It's what it represents. If you're an actual fan, that is what makes me so, so pissed off every time I see it. <laughs> Hopefully it's the last time. Hopefully this fine and whatever just puts it to bed. But that, that game, I have a feeling it's like the JMU game. It's, it's the ones that I will never forget because they're extremely painful. The last bit of news is good news. And we have got a commitment from a three-star running back out of Georgia named Jalen Holston. And, Neither Robbie or I are like super into just following all the targets and who's been offered and all that kind of stuff. But this is a guy the coaching staff really wanted. We clearly need a little bit of help at running back. Even though we got a lot of bodies, no one has stepped to the forefront. We're going to be losing Sam Rogers this offseason. And uh, Holston's a guy that might be – yeah. Shai's hurt. I mean, that's and that's another piece of it. It's and Marshawn's hurt. hurt. Like, you always need more guys at running back. This is someone who could come in and potentially be a factor for us right away. People are excited about this commitment, and um, if if it holds water, like we'll we'll find out. But it's always good to have talented players committing to Tech. We have a bunch of commitment dates coming up for guys that we've been going after hard, big time names like Devin Hunter. And garbage and goes on and on. And up until signing day, we'll hopefully be providing some updates with regard to who's committed, who we're looking at, that kind of thing. Robbie, before we bring on a special guest and talk a little scheme and talk a little bowl game, why don't you tell me what you're drinking? I'm drinking the Hop Ranch Imperial IPA. And for those, I know the commentary on me is I only drink IPAs. I have... Another type of beer coming. I have have decided on a new way of going about this. I'm going to do one for you, one for me. So I'll drink kind of my favorite type of beer, and then I'll drink one that I also like, but not as much. It's it's a very good IPA. It's intense. So if you're not a hop guy and you're not into, uh, you know, something really kind of punchy and you know on 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 that side of things, there's not a much uh, kind of a malt backbone. There's really nothing there. This is intended to be kind of a true imperial. It's uh, from Victory Brewing Company. We've had them on before. Pretty great brewery. None of their beers stand out as one of my tops, uh, including this one. But they're all like pretty pretty decent. It's out of Downington, Pennsylvania. In case you don't know them. But I think most people know Victory. I think a couple of their other beers might be better than this one. But it was a new one on the shelf that I found. And I like it. It's good. But you got to be a little bit of a hop head to enjoy it. Hop Ranch. I haven't had that one. And like being in Pennsylvania, I, Victory is everywhere. I like a lot of stuff. One of my favorites of Victories is the Vital IPA. And I know yeah. what you're saying and that none of their beers are – I, I've ever been like blown away by, but they make all very solid beers that I have again and again. How about you? I've got the, I've got a couple beers from South Carolina. We had one of our listeners, JP Nelson, shipped me a bunch of beers. He shipped me twelve beers, six different kinds of beers, some of which I'm going to end up giving to Robbie, but six different types of beer, which is just crazy amount. So I can only, I've got a couple I've sampled, and I'm drinking the Westbrook IPA, Westbrook Brewing Company. 
And it's out of Charleston. That's where JP sent all these beers up. He sent me, like I said, six different Charleston beers, three from Westbrook, and then a couple sprinkled in from other breweries. And this Westbrook IPA is delicious. Comes in a bright green can, 6.8% alcohol, a very spicy, good IPA. And some of the other ones I tried were the Coast Brewing Company, which is from North Charleston. And that was a very even IPA. And there was another brewing company, I think it was called Palmetto. And it was the Huger Street IPA. That one had a little less flavor, but I really appreciate JP sending these up. Thanks a lot. I know you listen to every episode. J- shout out to JP. Um, you went above and beyond, and, and I definitely appreciate it. And I'll be having some of the other beers on in, in later episodes. But the Westbrook IPA, if you're down in Charleston, seek this out. It's really, really good. Just in general, the people that have been sending us beer on the podcast, one, just thanks and you know, two, it's cool because they're beers that you, I can't, there's good beer stores around here, but even then we can't get some of these things outside of, you know, or outside of where I live. So it means a lot when people send stuff to us because, you know, we get to review it on the podcast and it's just really cool to know people are out there and listening and, you know, want to be part of the show. So Coming up next, we have an interview with French from The Key Play. And we brought French on prior to the season, and people loved that episode. It, it went over really well, and French, he's, he knows so much more than you and I in terms of just X's and O's and scheme and just even history of tech. And so he had some, some good insights on just how the season went for us, offensively, defensively, and then how the matchup against Arkansas is going to go. So we're going to play that interview for you now. And... About halfway through, my fire alarm went off, and Robbie had to take over the interview. Uh, so it's if it, it's a little choppy, we apologize, but I think it should come out smooth. Enjoy. We are welcoming in Jonathan French from The Key Play. He is their number one X's nose guy. And French, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. First thing that we wanted to jump into was the run game for Virginia Tech, uh, first and foremost. You know, if you look at... You know, the stats, you had McMillan last year going over 1,000 yards, and this year kind of squeaked by a little bit over 600 yards. Obviously, some of that was getting eaten up by the quarterback. But just wondering in your mind and, you know, what you've seen over the course of the year, do you think that has, you know, has to do with the scheme? Does it have to do with, you know, the running back core that we have? Um, do you think, you know, what are your thoughts on what drove that this year and whether maybe it's something that we can correct or at least be more productive on the field in this bowl game that we're trying to get to with 10 wins? Well, I certainly think part of it's personnel. Um, McMillan's an explosive player, but it was, it was pretty abundant that he didn't feel comfortable, especially running in between the tackles and so much of, Fuente's scheme besides the outside zone run is really focused on the tailback being a battering ram inside and and getting the defense to pull uh, to the middle of the field and that opens up space on the outside and and McMillan just didn't look comfortable in the role so you know to a certain extent Virginia Tech was forced to use guys like Sam Rogers, Stephen Peoples, you know Marshawn Williams guys who are not necessarily going to be game breakers in the running game uh, but you know, if they get if you got a four yard hole, they get you three point nine to four point two yards, and there just weren't a lot of explosive uh, plays from that position. Um, to Fuente and Brad Cornelson's credit, 
uh, late in the Clemson game, they found some ways to get McMillan uh, out on the edge. Uh, in particular, they had some plays where uh, they were able to get some crack box by uh, Sam Rogers on the Clemson linebackers. And McMillan looked significantly more comfortable uh, getting the ball out to the edge and making one decisive cut and getting upfield. I think that that fitted him better. Uh, but but in general, for most of the offense to be operational, uh, Fuente's working with a lot of uh, kind of spare parts right now, especially with the injuries, and hopefully that'll be addressed uh, through recruiting. For, from an offensive line perspective, there were there were two uh, issues that kind of held the running game back. One, um, Eric Gallo and Augie Conti struggled a bit this season. I don't think that that's uh, any secret. Uh, Conti got better as the year went along, but uh, there were still a lot of busts on the inside, and, and given how little spacing the backs already had on the interior, uh, that was problematic for breaking off big plays. And the other part of it really was scheme. Um, the backs were really, again, they were more window dressing a lot of the time, and most of the offensive play calling focus this year the running back plays were essentially giveaways where they had to show the plays and kind of run them into the middle where they were maybe outnumbered or didn't have a, a real good blocking advantage in order to open up some things in the screen game and the passing game and in the quarterback running game. And ultimately the offensive coaching staff felt more comfortable uh, with targeting playmakers in those other areas. That was a really good answer, French. I just learned a lot right there because I was – kind of worried it was more on the O-line and maybe the fourth offensive line coach in five years and Vance Vice was taking you know a little bit of heat on social media and that kind of thing that maybe he's not the greatest offensive line coach and I don't know it's got to be hard on those kids having so many different coaches and and you could speak more to that but uh, it makes me feel a little bit better that maybe as time goes on uh, we'll be more comfortable or our players that we recruit will be more comfortable in this scheme. Well, part of that's kind of, you know, what's going on behind the window. Um, I was admittedly not particularly high on Vince Vice. I saw some bad habits with the Memphis offensive line where, you know, the qual the scheme, the outstanding blocking at the skill positions and having a dynamic player like ba Paxton Lynch kind of covered up some of those flaws. And I saw some of them repeated this year. I, I don't think that you saw – some guys playing at the same level that they were even playing last year. That being said, um, yes, there's challenges with a new system. You're going to be a little bit tentative. Uh, and, you know, I, I really can't speak as well to that because I was lucky enough to have the same coach all four years on the offensive line. So we did, our scheme didn't really change any. Uh, but depending on the the number of line calls, the communication, all of that could change and that could cause some problems. And the other issue, again, is, you know, everybody was kind of packed in so tight, and part of that offense insists on, you know, sometimes not having your best blocker matched up with some of the best defensive players. You go back and you watch film of TCU against Wisconsin, and TCU's trying to block J.J. Watts with a tight end a lot of the time. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but... Uh, for the most part, I, I think, again, it's kind of like the running back position. There are some square pegs that they're trying to fit in round holes right now. And, uh, you know, in, in a large part because of that, uh, they stuck with what worked instead of, 
you know, running the tailback up the middle to death uh, to the point where, you know, it, it was an exercise in futility. Right. Well, I'm going to ask you a question about our defense now and, again, about the running game. And this is going to lead into what we're going to maybe see in the Arkansas game because they have a very talented running back in Raleigh Williams. The D was better this year defending the running quarterback. Now, it still wasn't great, but I felt like they showed improvement this year, especially over 2015. But I would say defending running backs might have stepped back just a little. We saw some of uh, obviously, James Conner, you know, he's a hokey killer, but uh, even Taekwon Mizzle had some breaks and that kind of thing. How has Bud Foster changed the way he defends the run this year? And how do you expect well, Arkansas to, like, match up with him in this upcoming game with, with a power running back in, in Williams? Well, Arkansas is a different animal from any team that, that, that the Hokies faced from a running game perspective this year, even Pittsburgh. Uh, and, and I'll talk more about that in a second. With defending the run, one of the things I found this year is that, you know, from a scheme perspective, there were some things that caused the Virginia Tech defense to struggle. Um, with Bud Foster's base defense, generally you'll see the defensive line slant the same way that the offensive line takes their first step. That's great against the zone running game because uh, essentially as long as the quarterback's not a threat to run on the backside, your defenders are stepping to where the ball is going. Um, against power running, uh, power blocking, where the offensive line will step one way and then they'll pull a lineman from the other side to come back across and create a seal, your defensive line is essentially slanting away from the football. And when the Hokies struggled to stop tailbacks, a lot of the time that was the kind of scheme that was being used. Uh, I think that the only exception was the Duke game where Duke was just figuring out a way to run plays where they were getting uh, numbers at the point of attack, and you had three defenders going against four blockers, and and eventually the Hokies figured out enough adjustments uh, defensively to to contain that as the game uh, worked its way towards its end. So I think from a scheme perspective, those are some things that are problematic. Um, there have been moments where the tackling from the safety position has been a little suspect. Same with. Uh, the middle linebacker position, Andrew Motuapuaka has had some fantastic games this year, but there have still been some games where he's had opportunities to make plays in space and just has not uh, been able to put guys on the ground. Um, I think that perhaps Foster has stumbled upon some gold uh, late in the Clemson game. I noted in my film review that, uh, that the Hoagies were much more effective stopping the run when Ricky Walker and Tim Settle uh, we're in at defensive tackle in place of Woody Barron and Nigel Williams. Certainly not a knock on Woody Barron and Nigel Williams, but if you have those two bigger guys who are just as disruptive and more stout at the point of attack, that really can free up a lot more space for guys like Motuapuaka and Tremaine Edmonds uh, to operate without getting blocked. And when they're not getting blocked or when they're not having to fight off blocks, they're a hundred times more effective. As far as Arkansas, uh, interestingly enough, Arkansas is uh, a team that uses a lot of the inside zone and power blocking concepts, uh, and probably more power blocking than any other team Virginia Tech has faced this year. Um, there are some opportunities. Austin Allen, Arkansas's quarterback, is 
mobile in the pocket, but he's not really any kind of a downfield running threat. Uh, so instead of having to worry about him on read options, you have to worry about him on bootlegs where he's throwing much more. And, and that'll allow Foster to do some things defensively from a movement perspective, you know, perhaps do a little more than just those basic slants to the play side gap uh, that you've seen and have some bodies moving around to, to, to be disruptive. And the one advantage, Arkansas has a really big offensive line, but they've struggled against fast defensive linemen, especially when they try to pull uh, pull blockers and having you know, a defensive tackle shoot through the gap where the where the pulling guard just vacated the space and and hitting guys behind the line of scrimmage. Uh, you know, there are ways to deal with that uh, power offense, and I think that Virginia Tech is pretty well set up uh, to to handle Arkansas defensively. Yeah, it should be – sounds like a fun game for, for Foster, allowing him to free things up a little bit, at least be more aggressive like he tends to to want to be without having to worry about the quarterback getting too mobile, at least down downfield running. Well, this is a dream for him because, you know, originally his entire defensive design going back to the mid-1990s was designed to go against I-formation power offenses – where the quarterback wasn't necessarily a threat in the running game. I mean, this is, you know, this is kind of a dream scenario. It's it's really who can play whose game. If Arkansas can get bodies on bodies, and get those, uh, you know, you mentioned Raleigh Williams. I really actually like the uh, the backup tailback for Arkansas. Deva Whaley is also really really explosive, as long as they're going straight downhill. Um, what I would expect, just a little nugget to to measure what Tech's chances are going to look like early in the game. If Virginia Tech's defensive ends are doing a really good job of crashing to the inside and forcing those backs to bounce outside, and the safeties are making one-on-one tackles when those backs bounce, I think you're going to see Virginia Tech handle Arkansas with some relative ease. If Either those defensive ends are not spilling the play effectively or those safeties are missing tackles, and they shouldn't because Williams and Whaley are not nearly as good when they're forced to move laterally. Uh, but if you're seeing them miss those tackles, it's, it's going to be a long day. I, I think you take away Arkansas's power running game, you take away their play action, and suddenly they become very, very limited offensively. And defensively, Arkansas is not very good, at least the games I've had an opportunity to watch. Yeah, and that's that's exactly great commentary and something that we'll all be looking out for and a great tidbit to keep in the back of the mind when we're looking at how things are going, especially early in the game in the first half, whether we're executing the plan that we hope to. What do you... What do you expect? We everybody that looks at statistics or film of this team recognizes that Arkansas on the defensive side of the ball is obviously far less talented than they are on the other side. What do you expect from the VT offense in in Charlotte? And whether that's, you know, how we approach the game from passing versus running or just our general success in, in what the game plan might be for, for Fuente and Cornelison to put together for us to have a chance to, to win this one. Uh, I got really excited. Um, the two games I got to spend the most time reviewing were Mississippi State and Missouri's matchups with Auburn. And, of course, Missouri is coached by former Fuente assistant coach uh, Barry Odom. Uh, so there's some similarities in terms of their offensive system to what Virginia Tech was running, especially in the passing game. 
and Missouri had a lot of success uh, lining up trips receivers to one side of the field and then a singular receiver to the boundary. Uh, either they could go deep and, and you know throw 50-50 balls to that single receiver to the boundary, and Isaiah Ford may be the best receiver at the country at that, or they would line up trips to, on the trip side of the field. They would either force Arkansas to take a, safe, a deep safety out of, co- uh, out of a deep alignment and press them as a man-covered guy, and uh, therefore you could work some stuff deep, or you could work forward on a post route from the other side without the safety being there to help. Uh, or even more importantly, if they chose to keep a safety deep and would move one of their big 250-pound inside linebackers out on the slot receiver, suddenly you've got Cam Phillips or C.J. Carroll one-on-one with a 250-pound guy, uh, particularly Brooks Ellis, who's their senior middle linebacker, is 6'2", 245, and you know, they will line him up in man coverage on slot receivers. So I think from a passing perspective, uh, Arkansas, you know, puts themselves in some pretty dangerous positions. They've got one corner I really like named Jared Collins, but he's, you know, very aggressive and like pit aggressive and he can be beaten over the top with some of those plays. From a running game perspective, Arkansas was pretty good if you were running downhill straight at them without a lot of misdirection. Uh, they're big. Uh, their defensive ends, uh, a couple of the guys are in the 265, 270 range, maybe even bigger. Uh, they look more like uh, five-technique defensive tackles than ends. And, then, of course, their linebackers are big. Where they really struggled was with any kind of misdirection. Uh, Mississippi State absolutely killed them with inverted veer stuff. Uh, with plays where they would outside zone to one side and the quarterback would release with a blocker on the backside. And it was like watching a lot of the bread and butter plays we've seen from Gerard Evans, uh, you know, working the jet sweeps and the inverted veers, working the quarterback counters uh, all year. And you would see plays where three Arkansas defenders were running away from where the football was going. And uh, the Mississippi State quarterback essentially would run 40 or 50 yards untouched. So there are some definite opportunities offensively. I think just making sure that uh, you know their bowl preparation is sharp, uh, that they you know stick with, uh, or that you have seniors that are there and ready to play, and that you stick with the game plan and make sure that you know you go and and take what that defense gives you and I think that they'll find some opportunities to be very successful offensively. Uh, the only FBS team that Arkansas really stopped in any semblance was was Florida and you know we as Hokie one fans of the are worst familiar <laughs> with Austin Appleby and, and that Florida offense and you know what was brought down from Purdue so yeah. Yeah, that was take a that for uh, what it's worth. That was a- it was not a very very good offense this year, but you get now you've gotten me excited because I like what CJ Carroll has done in terms of maturity this year and becoming I mean, he's a fast guy. We knew that going into the season, but he he seems to start to figure out his role in that slot receiver spot. And if you put him up against a guy that big, you better have some wheels on him or or Carroll can do some do some damage uh, in the slot role. So that that's exciting. Yeah, Arkansas really has to pick their own poison. You know, I think Cam Phillips could have a huge, huge game. Carroll, depending on, you know, how much they utilize him and what the offense is trying to accomplish, I think he's going to have some opportunities to to make some plays over the middle. But you know Cam Phillips is going to be on the field a lot. And, you know, 
Arkansas's corners aren't great. And, you know, I think that that speaks to how good their nickel guy is. Uh, so so I really think Phillips, who was probably the best receiver the last couple of games of the year and, and hasn't really gotten as much credit as I'd like to see him get for it, uh, he's been really, really good. And I think that this could be a, a coming out party for a, a good TV audience for him. Well, I mean, I, I had Cam Phillips as my breakout player this year. It paid off because he's done fantastic and I'm really excited, depending on what happens with, uh, you know, with Bucky and with Ford and whether or not they decide to come back, uh, either in either case. I think Phillips next year is going to be even better than this year. So I'm I'm really happy for him and glad that he had a great season because he's, he's put in a lot of work and I think he deserves every moment of it. So with that, Jonathan, we know that you are getting ready for this Arkansas game. You probably have uh, some film reviews coming out, so let us know what people should be looking at in terms of uh, what you're going to be publishing on the key play. Will do. Uh, keep an eye out this week, either uh, Wednesday or Thursday. You'll see uh, the review of Arkansas. It's a very detailed look at their running game and uh, a little bit of a look at their defense, but very heavily focused on you know what Virginia Tech has to do and you know, what they're well-suited to do to shut down those big power running backs we talked about. Perfect. Well, Jonathan, thank you as always. And your work is tremendous on the key play. Your articles are as detailed as you'll find anywhere covering any team. Um, with film review attached, every part of every game gets diagnosed and, and brought out in a way that all of us dummies out there can can understand and get a better read on what the team's doing and why they're doing it. So, we appreciate you coming on to the podcast as always and look forward to hopefully seeing you down in Charlotte for what should be a fun game. Well, I'll be down there. We'll see if anybody uh, recognizes me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. And, um, you know, take care and thanks for coming on again. Thanks so much. Go Hokies. I hope everyone enjoyed the interview with, with French. He always brings the knowledge harder than we could ever imagine. We really appreciate him coming on. We need to talk about this this game, man. I mean, we're both going down to Charlotte for the Belk Bowl. I couldn't be more excited about it. I have some friends down in Charlotte. I've been down there a number of times, and every time I go, I have an absolute blast. The downtown is is kind of a small, like, just few blocks by few blocks. When it really comes down to it, you can walk to the stadium. It makes for a really great game day atmosphere, and I'm pumped. And one of the reasons I'm pumped is that this Arkansas team, I look at the matchup, and I see it as a very winnable matchup. I I would agree. So, you know, Arkansas, it's our first meeting as two teams, VT and Arkansas. And we get Brett Bielema, which we're all very ex- excited about. And he's a character in his own right. But, you know, a fun coach to have on the other side. A lot of the words that he said, you know, during the press conference were very nice about Virginia Tech. They went seven and five this year. You know, their their wins are not that impressive whatsoever, but their losses are against pretty good teams. Right. They're they're not facing this is not a schlep loss category here. You got A and M, Alabama, Auburn, LSU, Missouri, that's not a good look. It's probably their last that's probably their worst loss, I would have to say. Exactly. But outside of the Missouri game, those are respectable losses on teams this year, especially the way that Auburn turned things around. And um, A&M was a really good program. LSU, 
obviously was a pretty good program and has a very dynamic NFL bound running back. So, but like I you think said, there's a lot of talent there. But like you said, their best win also like it was the Florida game. They beat you know a Florida team that won the East and was ranked I guess ten at the time. But that that I think if you were following college football, the timing of that win, you could kind of see it coming. The timing was perfect for Arkansas and perfect storm for Florida for it to go the other way. I think they were without a bunch of players and maybe their quarterback. Regardless, the schedule for Arkansas has been decent to even very to even pretty good, but they're not a very good team. Their defense isn't very good at all. And they have a potent offense, but it's not it's not even as good as like the pit offense. It, it's it's good. It's not great. And we're going to talk a little bit more about it. And, and you mentioned Bielam. I mean, he's in his fourth season at Arkansas already. And while he has a pretty solid out-of-conference record at 15-3, and three, which is pretty amazing, he's 10-22 and 22 in the SEC. 10-22. and 22. Yeah. And, you know, this is a perfect time to bring it up, which is the higher level point, is before we get into the details, a lot of times people think of People think of bowl games as who has the most reason to try and win. Like, you know, who who needs to win this game? And in this case, I think you have an interesting dynamic between two teams in that you have a bunch of Virginia Tech players, Isaiah Ford, Conti. You have senior players. You have juniors that are eligible for the draft, all focused on this game because there's been instilled a mentality that you should try and win it for your seniors on the Virginia Tech side. On the Arkansas side, losing this game very well could put Bielema next year on the hot seat from a coaching perspective because in the SEC, you have to win every single game. The point being that it's going to be an interesting dynamic of seeing an inspiration, I think, that is that is player-driven on the Virginia Tech side Whereas on the Arkansas side, it's player-driven trying to hope that their coach sticks around. And that's assuming, I don't know the Arkansas locker room. I think they all probably like him. But you know they're, they're trying to make sure that he is in good shape. Yeah, I think you're right in that Bielema could be on the hot seat next year. If he goes 7-6 and six this season, that, conf- that side of the division, seen as the strength of college football, took a step back this year. And we'll see... Uh, you know, other than Bama, of course, but we'll yeah. s- we'll see who steps up, and maybe Bielema has a bounce back season next year, and they go to a top tier bowl game. But this is a pivotal moment for the Arkansas program, so we'll see how how the game goes. But I like our chances, and one of the reasons I like it is because their strength, which is a good offense, usually favors. Virginia Tech historically and even this year when we play teams with a better offense than defense we tend to to do better against those teams yeah I think their strength lines up pretty well against what our best defense is and the vice versa is true in our strength could decimate what what their weakness is I went to run the numbers because if you think Arkansas and you think Bielema you think running the ball period that's what you have to take into account. So I ran the numbers on attempts, and they ran the ball 60% of the time. I expected that to be upwards of like 70% of the time, 
passing versus rushing, it was actually a lot heavier on the passing side, which Austin, like led me right to Austin Allen. And they got a lot out of him this year that most fans for the Razorbacks probably weren't expecting. They they went into this year thinking it was going to be kind of a, you know, could be a good year. And it was not a great year for him by any stretch of the imagination, but they they were relatively low on him going into the year. I feel like he outperformed the expectation, if nothing else. I think he got better as the year went along, and I, I agree with you. I think they were pleasantly surprised with what they got from Austin Allen this year, quarterback. And in some ways, I thought his play was kind of like Michael Brewer, but a better version of Michael Brewer, slightly bigger. But what he does is he's not a runner, and neither was Brewer, but he is mobile in the pocket and can make something out of nothing uh, and can and move side to side really well, steps up really well in the pocket, good pocket presence. And it's evident by their offense being capable of a lot of big plays. They were 19th nationally with 11 plays of 50 yards or more, which means they're basically getting a 50-yard play every game. They can definitely you know hurt you with the big play, and his athleticism just – it allows him to do a lot with a bad offensive line. They really didn't protect him very well. He had as many sacks as Gerard Evans did this year in 28, but their offensive line also was 95th in tackles for loss allowed. They were not they were not really good despite having two guys that were on the all SEC teams. The offensive line is hasn't done well in pass protection, but I think they've led to a lot they're better on, you know, generating the run than they are in pass protection is how I'd characterize it. They're yeah, gigantic. Right. I mean, they I, I looked at the stats last night on average. I think they're about 15 pounds heavier than the pit offensive line. And I mean, they are a big, big, heavy group, which also, you know, if you have a, a bunch of defensive linemen on the other side that are mobile and can get around them, then I think that's where they get themselves in trouble well, in the pass protection. The running game is obviously a focus. Raleigh, I think, is extremely dangerous for us going into this game. I actually, Whaley, I think, is is pretty capable. And, you know, the production per carry, you know, lines up to be about the same. But... That's that's pretty impressive when you're bringing in your kind of backup running back in in most plays, and the wide receiving threat with Morgan, 61 receptions, 700 yards, three TDs. Even more productive was Hatcher, who had 38 for 638 and seven TDs. Those two are kind of your big two. Behind them, Cornelius and Sprinkle, and Sprinkle's a tight end, not a wide receiver. Both you know racked up you know 40. TDs a piece they they have a little bit to work with here and I think Austin Allen is I think he's a capable you know to above capable QB is how I'd characterize him no I would I would totally agree with that and yeah you I think you said 40 TDs for Cornelius and Spray it was four as for I know I, 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 no, for for each yes that, yes that I know what you mean Cornelius yes and sprinkles a guy that I'm I'm worried about I, he is really athletic. I watch a, a handful of their highlights, and and when he pops up on a highlight, you notice him immediately. He's six six two fifty six, and a dangerous guy who can be a problem in the red zone. So Sprinkle is they 
they're calling him like his the X Factor, and I guess he's kind of like their answer to Bucky Hodges. I guess if you're looking for a similarity, but he's like beefier than Bucky, and might even be more athletic, which is a scary thought. Keon Hatcher, you mentioned, he's I would say their deep threat with the seven touchdowns. He could be a serious problem for us as well. I'm curious as to what they're going to do in this game. I don't know like, if we can stop their power running game. And he, it, you know, Raleigh Williams is the kind of guy that he can give a defense a lot of issues. And our defense has shown at times that we don't defend a power running back very well. And it makes yeah. me really nervous in what that can open up for Austin Allen in the passing game. I think the key on that side of the ball is strangely to get Tim Settle in the game. You you need somebody. He's quick on his feet. We've all known that for a while, and it's been shown on film and whether you watch him on Snapchat or wherever, he's a lot quicker on his feet than he should be. It's incredible, actually. Getting him in the game and having a stout body that can cause disruption through size but also be mobile enough to move around. I I feel like that is a key to this game is I think we're going to have to run a heavier defensive line set than we normally would, given what we're going up against, to have a shot in this game. And it, it worked pretty well in the Clemson game, and I wouldn't say that we were overmatched in terms of size in that game. I think we were more overmatched in the pit game. But having those guys in on the heavier set, a little bit, they're still mobile, not maybe not as mobile, might do us a little bit of justice in this game and give us a shot. Yeah, no, it's not a bad idea. I'm, I just don't know if they play Tim Settle next to Nigel or it would be – it's usually Walker next to Settle, I guess, in that set, which I do love that, and that's the future of our D-line, so I'd like to see some of that. All right, we already talked about their O-line, so I guess we should probably flip over to their defense. And this defense is not good. And the more you dive into it, the more nuggets of badness you can find. <laughs> if that... Are you are you ready for this? Yeah. Here you go. Let's do it. My little buttercup has the sweetest smile. Is that like uh, your version of Mr. Softy right there? That was my no. I don't. I don't try and take things from them. I just make up my own. So, yeah, that's that's one of my favorite movies. It's it's. I mean, this defense deserves the the Buttercup uh, <laughs> label because they're a really bad team when you when you're forced to throw against them on passing downs. They are the 116th ranked team in terms of the S and P on defense. The, meaning, there's only a few teams worse than them when they know you have to pass and you can complete it anyway. They're 115th in the S&P against the rush. They're 121st in tackles for loss. They're 123rd in yards per play. Any advanced metric you look at, they're a bad defense. The thing that gives me cause for pause is the Syracuse game because that defense was just as bad. And yes, that was on the road in a weird place and a weird spot in the season. But it shows you that if a team is motivated to play, the stats don't really mean anything. 
I well, think, I didn't write this down, but the fourth down or the red zone defense for them is as bad as Syracuse. And as soon as I saw that stat, I just deleted it because I didn't even want to go there because <laughs> <laughs> that's what we thought was going to be a game breaker last time. The The interesting part, and I didn't bring it up earlier, but it could go in either segment, is they've outscored opponents in the first half 233 to 170 this year. And we all know there's cupcake games all over the place and that influences the stats. In the second half, they've been outscored 189 opponents to 124 in in that second half. I it's their defense on top of not being great, I think gets fatigued on and it really damages what they can <laughs> what they're putting out on the field. Yeah, the, their best player on defense, I would say, was their linebacker, Brooks Ellis. And he has seven tackles for loss. Now, if you want to compare that to Virginia Tech's defense, we have two guys with 17 tackles for loss. Their best guy has seven. So that just kind of puts in perspective of the, the disparity in quality of defense that will be on the field. And that's, like I said, that's their best player. Their Their defensive backs, I think, are their strongest group. Their passing defense is better than their rush defense, but like I said, on true passing downs, it's just as bad. They got some guys in the back that can play, a bunch of pass breakups, this and that, but like teams have been passing all over them and running all over them. So the stats get totally skewed sometimes with, with these bad teams. Along their defensive line, I mean, I already said they're 121st in tackles for loss. They're not even getting five a game. 90th in sacks. They got Ledbetter. He has four sacks, five tackles for loss. Wise is third on the team in tackles, which is impressive for a guy who's 270 pounds. And uh, he has five tackles for loss. But, I mean, I, I don't know, Robbie. I, I don't think there's any guys that really warrant, like, a big-time shout-out on this defense other than maybe Ellis. No, I'm kind of done. So, <laughs> I know that's anticlimactic, but it's just they haven't really performed that well this year. And... You know, hats off to them if they come out against Virginia Tech and have a day and play really well. But there's nothing that they've shown this season that spooks me other than the fact that it's a bowl game. And I think they, you know, for Bielema's sake, need to win it. That's it. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And if we're looking at ways that we can gain an advantage and in, in something that we've not been good at, and that would be running the football with Trayvon and uh, Sam Rogers and just our regular running backs, this Arkansas team is giving up 6.6 yards per carry against non-quarterback runs. So Gerard Evans will run the football on this team. That's without a doubt. And he'll also pass it all over the place on this team. But the fact that they're giving up six yard, six point six yards per carry to the the running backs of other teams and just guys carrying the football other than the quarterback, that is great news for us because that gives us the hope of getting the balance we had against UVA, where we went for two ninety and two ninety passing and running. That's what I'm looking for in this game, and and in games that we've been able to run the football well, like it's been a no contest in terms of us winning winning the game like we usually win by multiple touchdowns if that's the case so everything lines up well on the defensive side it's about motivation it's about playing with passion because that's what didn't happen against Syracuse it's what didn't happen against Georgia Tech those other times we've seen these bad defenses and we didn't show up this is a bad defense 
you need to score 40 points on them with like no less than 40 should be scored. Yeah. And if we start fast in this game, that's kind of my takeaway is we've continually had a problem with, you know, getting out, starting fast, scoring a touchdown quick. If we can do that, I think we're in good shape because Arkansas's stats over the year of what happens in the first half versus the second half, absolutely. And what we've done in the second half versus the first half lean towards us. So if we come out quick, then this game could be over pretty quickly. If we don't, then we're in for a nail biter and Gerard's going to have to you know, do his magic at the end. But I do think that we would pull away in the fourth fourth quarter, re- regardless of what happens, just because I think their defense is going to get tired quick. And it, it looks like they suffer a lot at that point in time. Like when they get to that fourth quarter, they, they just don't have the depth that they need. Yeah, and I feel like we've been very good in the second half as well this season. Like we've had strong second halves at times, and and if that's the case, then I'll, I'll feel comfortable with where the game's at. I just don't want to be down by two scores in the fourth or something like that. And that comes back to you don't don't start flat, like you said. If you don't start flat and you don't turn the ball over, this is a win. Like that's as that's as simple as I can make it. I kind of kind of just jump to our keys, but that's we're already there. That's what you have to do. Don't turn it over. Take care of the football, and play with a fire, with passion, with the proper motivation. And Tech will win. We're the better team, and we'll we'll see if it plays out that way. Let's do a quick beer break before we jump into, you know, our big picture stuff and picks. Robbie, what are you drinking? I went with it again. I went clown shoes. It's obviously one of the big bottles that they uh, normally put out there. They do have a couple other four packs of Imperial and things like that, at least down here in Virginia. It's their Hammer of the Beast. It's a Imperial Stout and Barley Wine Ale aged in bum ra- rum bio- <laughs> rum barrels, if we can actually get that correct. <laughs> so it's almost 12%. It's heavy as hell, but it's delicious. It's from Ipswich, Massachusetts. Massachusetts has made a huge push. Vermont, Massachusetts, New Hampshire on really top beers. And this is probably up there with them, especially since I don't drink these every day. And it's delicious. I kind of like the barley wine um, beers. They got a little bit more sweetness to them for me. And then you mix that with a nice imperial stout. And it's got that kind of malty kind of bite to it, but not you know overly heavy. And this is a fantastic beer. It's delicious, but it's if you were gonna skip dinner and eat a dinner, then you would do it with this beer because it's got some it's got some ass to it. And really great. The clowny shoes, hammer of the beast is one to pick up, but I would jo- have a friend join in when you're drinking it. I was down in Richmond this past week. I have a friend who's laid up in the hospital right now, and he, if you're listening, you know me and Robbie both care about you a lot. Get better soon, buddy. But I was over able to stop at a friend's house afterwards, and um, I was talking to him about local beers and stuff, and he's like, oh, man, I have a bunch of – new Hardywood stuff in the garage. And so he takes me out there and he's like, yeah, just take this back with you. So I'm drinking the Hardywood Christmas morning. And 
You've probably heard of their gingerbread stout. They're kind of well-known for at this time of year. But this is their gingerbread stout, but it's conditioned on locally roasted coffee beans. So it's like their gingerbread stout, but a coffee beer on top of it. It's 9.2% alcohol. And Robbie, I think this is right up your alley. I know you like stouts and you're kind of a coffee guy as well. It is absolutely delicious. I love the name Christmas morning. Like you can wake up and immediately start drinking. Uh, (laughs) I'm just pissed because I can't get a sip of it. So I'm going to have to find it. It's, it's really, really good. Thanks Nick for, uh, for giving me this beer, uh, hints of sweet honey and oven baked gingerbread greet the comforting nuances of freshly brewed morning coffee in this Imperial milk stout. That's how it reads on the back of the bottle. And I have to say it, it tastes as good as it sounds. It's very, very good. The Hardywood Christmas Morning. Robbie, I, I want to talk for a minute about the bigger picture with this game. And that would be the difference between 10 and 4 and 9 and 5. And that's something that's been posted around the football facilities. The guys are seeing it every day. And it really is a big difference. It is. And it comes back to, well, I, I don't know what it really comes back to, but I think a lot of it's back to the fan base. The fact is, is there's a lot of players and people that they don't just sit around and not look at message boards or things like that. They like to know what the perspective of the team is. And we've almost built up what the 10 win seasons were under Beamer more than anybody else. <laughs> and this is a chance to get back to it. And that 10 number may seem arbitrary or contrived or just, you know, a statistical anomaly in what makes a good team from a bad team. But the fact is, is that it's looked at by a lot of people. And if we can get there, I think it means a lot for the program. I'm not, me personally, I'm not banking, you know, everything about next season or the way the program is moving on the 10 wins. Would I like to get it? Yes. But we also have to keep into, you know, in mind that it's not everything. We made huge strides in the program this year. I would love to get there, and I'd love that it's incentivizing the program and a lot of the team, and sending out seniors with that kind of stat record is great. But for me personally, it's not that big of a deal, but I'm still paying attention to it. Yeah, man. I mean, 10 wins is one of those things that, especially looking at the Hokie season, if we get this 10th win, it's an amazing year. Like this is a really amazing year, especially for Fuente. Everyone's going to be like, "Oh, he has them ahead of schedule. They're doing great." This and that. If you go nine and five and you lose your last game to a middling SEC team, it's kind of like, "All right, let's see what he does next year." Like he had a good season. Let's see if he can take it up a notch next year. It, it's a difference. I, I feel like the tenth win would set us on a a higher trajectory going into next season. People would be more on alert of the Hokies and, and everything else. And sometimes that can work to your disadvantage because then you get outranked and people think you should be better than you really are and everything like that. But I really want to get this 10th win, I guess is what it really comes down to. There's only one additional point I would tag onto that, which is realize there's an additional loss in there for a reason. Yeah. Which a lot of people don't pay attention to. It's like, well, because I was listening to Solid Verbal today and they were talking about teams that were, you know, 10 and 10 and three or whatever the case or could end up 10 and three. And also remember that we 
got to play in the national championship or the the ACC championship game, which also leads to one of those losses in the L column. So, you know, that's one of the things that always throws me off when I'm listening to stats, because when you roll in next year, that's what everybody's going to be talking about is what did they do last year? What are they going to do this year? Who did they lose? Who are they bringing back? And that additional loss was against a they're in the college football playoff, the Clemson team that's going for a national championship. Right. Let's do the lines. Virginia Tech is coming as a seven-point favorite. And I think that's probably about right. I think it opened at six and then has moved up to seven. And we're number 22, according to the committee. Arkansas is unranked. And if you look at their S&P, you know, Arkansas is in the 50s. And and, and Sagarin has them at 47. So, you know, we know they're going to compete. We know they're good. They're not great. And I think Virginia Tech, I think they're going to cover this spread. I would like it a lot more at five and a half, but I think that's obvious. I think we're going to still cover the seven. Yeah, I don't like the seven, but I'm still taking Virginia Tech. I think the third and fourth quarter stats against Arkansas are an indictment against their defense. And I think it's important to... defenses get worn down and especially when they're playing a decent offense. And I think that we put out on the field, the decent offense. And I think we have enough to wear them down, especially at their strength points, which is we have enough threats in the receiving game and they're, you know, they're probably better there than they are in some other places on the field. So I think we're going to cover it and it's going to come down to a close game middle of the third quarter, and I think we'll pull away in the fourth. I fully agree with you, and I was going to lay out like a little scenario in terms of how I think it'll go ultimately, and I think that this will be more of a shootout. Like I didn't really think the Clemson game would end like a shootout, and it did. I think this will start kind of fast. Like Both teams will get a lot of points early, and then in the third quarter, fourth quarter, Bud's going to adjust – Fuente will adjust, and all of a sudden we're going to open up like a 10- to 14-point lead, and it, it will still be high-scoring, high higher scoring, but we're going to end up you know, covering that spread somewhat comfortably. That's kind of how I think it'll play out. So you, you had it on the money in, in that third, fourth quarter thing. Let's move on to the next bowl, and, and we're going to do kind of a smattering of bowls here. They're going to be ACC games, and then we're going to do the final playoff game as well. So... It's the Pinstripe Bowl. Number 23, Pitt, is a five-and-a-half-point favorite over Northwestern. And this is in New York City at Yankee Stadium. I like Pitt a lot. I have all year. I think they've got a really strong offense. But that defense really worries me. And I'm going to take Northwestern. And I also think this will be a shootout. Yeah, I'm I'm only going to take it because I I kind of like Matt Canada in the sense that I think he knows what he's doing, and I think he is going to be in the bowl game, last I read, and I think he kind of wants to go out of pit, especially with the James Conner story behind it, that he wants to go out on a high note. So I think he's going to put together a really good scheme for this game. So that's the only reason I'm taking pit is I think Canada leaving, going to LSU, and his... I imagine he has some attachment or at least a lot of attachment to what happened with James Conner this year that they'll they'll make something happen here. All right, the next game is the Russell Athletic Bowl. 
This is West Virginia against Miami. West Virginia is number 16 in the committee rankings. Miami is unranked. And uh, Miami is a three-point favorite, actually. West Virginia has not been getting a ton of love all year, despite their low amount of losses. And that makes me happy because we hate West Virginia, but we also hate Miami. So this makes it it makes it kind of difficult to pick. You got to pick the lesser two evils here. I'm going to go with Miami to cover that three point spread. I don't think West Virginia is good at all. I don't think the Big Twelve is really that good at all. I think Oklahoma is solid, and I think everyone else is kind of just whatever. Miami. So had, I'm going. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Miami no, had a you. bad four game stretch. Otherwise, they've been a very good team. So I'm I'm taking the Canes. Sorry. No, I, I think your points are all valid. I'm just trying to figure out the broader meaning of everything, which is overthinking it, which means I'm probably going to lose all these games. So don't bet on any of these picks. I want WVU, as much as we don't like them, to be ranked as high as possible going into next year. We have a big matchup. It's going to be awesome at FedEx next year. So... I, in a weird, twisted kind of way, as much as I hate saying this, I want WVU to win. So they're coming in next season with, and I know I shouldn't mix that with what my actual prediction is, but I don't really care, that I want them to win so they're highly ranked or more highly ranked than they would be otherwise going into next year. So we have a, a really solid opponent. All right, I'd probably agree with that. That would be That would be nice if they came in like, you know, a top 15 team and we were able to knock them off. Next game is the Orange Bowl. Michigan against Florida State. This should be a really fun game. Michigan's number six. Florida State is number 11. And Michigan is a seven-point favorite. I like Florida State in their home state of Florida to cover those seven points. I think they've got a very potent offense. And while Michigan's defense is awesome, I like Florida State's offense. I think Florida State is a team that's become more consistent as the year's gone on. So I like them to cover those points. I have FSU as well. I think you give Jimbo that much time, and I think he can do a lot of damage with the talent that they have on their roster. So I agree. I'm going FSU. All right. The next game is the Citrus Bowl. This is LSU against Louisville. Another fun matchup. Uh, Contradiction of styles, if you will. LSU is number 20. Louisville is number 13. And LSU is a three-point favorite. I like the LSU Tigers in this one. Louisville's faded down the stretch, obviously. They do have, you know, according to the Heisman voters, the best player in college football. So it should remain interesting, but LSU has so much talent on the defensive side of the ball. Although they'll be without Fournette, Geis was first-team All-SEC, and he wasn't even the starter. He's incredible. So I like LSU to cover that three. I'm going Louisville just on a bounce back that I think the loss of Fournette is more... It's not just the talent on the field, like you said. I mean, their backup is probably as good, if not better, than Fournette. But the loss of him on the sideline might impact them a little bit. So I think this is going to be a really good... This is actually probably one of the games that I'm most excited about because the difference between these two teams and the way that they run their offensive scheme and what they put out on the field should be really exciting to see what they do. But I'm going to end up, I'm going to go Louisville. Okay, so we got the last two games we're going to pick are the playoff games. Ohio State against Clemson in the Fiesta Bowl. Ohio State is a three-point favorite. They're number three. 
and Clemson's number two. This is probably the, my favorite bowl game of all the bowl games, and it, obviously that should probably make sense since it's in the playoff, but that's not always the case. This is this is an awesome matchup of two programs that have taken different paths to get to where they are, and I like Clemson. I know that Ohio State's the favorite, and everyone loves Ohio State. They've been, you know, the this team that won the national championship two years ago, and they only had the a quirky loss last year to Michigan State, but I like this Clemson team. When they play at their best, I feel like they're they can beat anyone, including Alabama. We saw it in last year's national championship game, how close they came to winning it all. I like Clemson. I have Clemson as well. Uh, the prospects of giving Urban Meyer this much time to prepare scared the hell out of me. Regardless of how young his team is or any of the offseason you know, commentary that came into the season and quickly got rebutted by their performance this year, that scares me. But Dabo has proven himself to be a high-level gameplay coach, and he showed it last year in the national championship. And I think he's going to bring his stuff this year, and they have a ton of talent. Seeing that defense... This year in the ACC championship game, what against a a weaker offensive line for Ohio State than we've seen in a while, thinks to me I think they're going to have some problems. Okay, so the last game is Washington against Alabama, and if you've been following our picks at all this year, you know that I've been on Bama uh, every every single time, and I'm not going to change. There are 15 and a half point favorites against Washington in the Peach Bowl. I'm going Bama. Cover those I'm going out. <laughs> I'm going out with a win with Washington. Oh man. I've lost every game this year. First of all, this would I haven't looked at the records, but I think this would be the first time a team has beaten the spread. Is it in every single game? I think there was one game where they didn't and that might have been the LSU game. I'm not sure though. Okay, so everything I I still think that probably sets a record. I mean, it's unbelievable to beat. So now I have to go against Alabama. I'm going Washington. Patterson's a good coach. He can come up with a trick play or two to keep it close. And that's what everyone keeps saying. And I I I totally get that. These four teams that are in the playoff, these are probably the best four coaches in college football. I, and I think the only other two that have a real argument are David Shaw and Harbaugh. And yeah. but if, Saban, Chris Peterson, Dabo Sweeney, and Urban Meyer. I mean, does it? Those could easily you could make the argument those are the four best coaches in college football. Yeah, and I think it it would be well deserved to you know that that, that is absolutely I think truth. I can't think of who the seventh would be, and maybe. You could you could Jim, have made Jimbo Jimbo Jimbo's up there. You could make the argument for D'Antonio before this year because he was just in the playoff last year at Michigan State, and that's the scary thing is that everyone's like Chris Peterson's a really good coach. Like Washington's not going to get blown out, but you know Mark D'Antonio was a really good coach too, and Michigan State got their doors blown off last year. So no, I, I mean it, they're up against the scariest team that had that anybody in the last five to seven years has faced. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. The question is, is, does he just not sleep and just think of ways to beat it over 
what it amounts to a month, basically, that he gets to try and keep things close. There's no, I, I, if they won, that would be literally the biggest upset in college football in the last 15 years. Yeah, it would be a gigantic, gigantic. I mean, we're already talking about almost a 16-point spread, not to mention just that doesn't even account for what people's mentality is. It's like Bama's not going to lose. Regardless of spread, people just they're, Bama's not going to lose. No one thinks they're going to lose. So it would be monumental in that respect. Before we sign off, I have a quick trivia question for Robbie. And Oh, goodness. And some people requested us bring trivia back because they like the Virginia Tech trivia. This is bowl related Virginia Tech trivia, so it's it's pertinent. You just to like embar- you just like embarrassing me. Uh, well, we'll just see. I mean, obviously, I have to look it up. I didn't technically know the answer to this before I looked it up, but I had a good idea. So, in his twenty three straight bowl appearances, what was Frank Beamer's longest bowl winning streak? Meaning. What was the most amount of bowls he won in a row over his 23 years? Um, I don't, I don't feel like it was very long because our bowl record was, is, I mean, it's good, but it's not great. I'm going to say that's rough. I'm going to say just for expediting the podcast, three. It was two. We have only oh, we have only ever you saw won- me signaling <laughs> two or three, and and that's the thing is you know like everyone who follows Tech knows that we've struggled in some of the bowl games, and but you would think that over time at some point we would have won three in a row, but the most we've ever won in a row was two, and it took oh, us that's... a long time to do it. It happened in 08 in the the 08 season in the Orange Bowl, and then the 09 season when we beat Tennessee in the Chick Fil A Bowl. So that was our first time ever winning back to back bowl games, 08 and 09 in the history of the program. We did it again in 14 and 15 when we won the Military Bowl, and then the uh, what was last year the Tulsa Bowl, the uh, Shreveport Bowl, the Independence Bowl. So we've only ever won back-to-back bowl games twice in school history. We've never won three in a row. So this year, we're actually going for three wins in a row in bowl games. Fuente himself has only coached in one bowl game. It was the Miami Beach Bowl against BYU, against Bronco Mendenhall, and he won. So he has 1-0 in bowl games. He's going for a second win. We'll see if he can make Virginia Tech 500 in the bowl streak because we've played 23 games in this bowl streak under Frank Beamer, we're 11 and 12. If Fuente can pull off the win, we'll be 12 and 12 in the last 24 bowls. We'll see what happens. Just a little trivia for people out there who have been asking for it. Uh, that's it. We've gone way too long. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the French interview. I hope you enjoy the bowl preview. We will be down in Charlotte. So if you're there, you're at a tailgate, you're at a bar, let us know where you're at. Maybe we can come meet up or whatever. It's at 2DVT on Twitter. 2DVT at gmail.com if you want to send us anything else. And make sure you subscribe on iTunes as well. We always need more subscribers and and uh, reviews if you're willing to write one for us. We'd really appreciate it. Robbie, I hope we win. I'll see you in about 10 days. It's going to be a great time. 10 days against, against the Razorbacks. Let's skin some pigs. Yeah, baby. Let's do it.
All right. And until after the bowl game, when we're recapping, hopefully our 10th win. Go Hokies. Go Hokies.